Hello and welcome to 20 Tim Minutes, a podcast that focuses on mental health in a serious but yet humorous way. Listen as I interview a wide variety of guests where we show our support as well as sharing our own personal struggles and stories with mental health. I am your host, Tim McCarthy, and now it's time to talk about it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of 2010 Minutes. Today, I am joined by Sadie Sutton of the She Persisted podcast. Sadie, how are you? How are you? Jesus. I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. We finally met up uh, after a couple um, timing differences because you're on the West Coast in what, California? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bay Area. Yeah, so you're up pretty early right now. I'm just got getting out of work. So I- I'm glad we got to meet up. I was excited yeah. for you to come on and talk with you. So explain a little bit about the Sheep Resisted Pod. Um, why did you start? And then we'll go into like your little backstory of uh, how it came about. Yeah, of course. So um, like we'll dive into next. Um, I ended up doing a year and a half of intensive treatment after struggling with depression and anxiety. And so when I was navigating that um, at the beginning of it, my dad was like, Sadie, you should start a podcast. Like I'll bring you a recorder. Think about how many of you will navigate this. This would be so powerful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> See, it's early morning. Early morning. Right. I know. Um, hey, don't yawns are all right with me. They're just <laughs> wicked contagious. Um and I was like, absolutely not. This is like so embarrassing. At that point I like totally blamed my parents for everything I was going through. Um, and I was like, no, not sharing this. I could barely process through it and understand it myself, let alone even like fathom sharing it with someone else. So I was like, nope, not happening. Um, and throughout my my mental health struggles people always told me that it would get better and that that treatment would work and we'll we'll get into what that exactly looked like but a a year and a half after I began that journey I got to a point where I was like oh my gosh like I I I did it like I am not depressed I'm not struggling with anxiety I have a life that I really enjoy and that I love which I thought would never happen I was so entrenched in the belief that I would be the one outlier in in therapy it wasn't going to work for me I was so young when I started feeling depressed that I thought that would never change I was just it was part of me and I could totally understand that other people could have a different experience and then it worked for them but it wasn't going to work for me um and there was so many other things going into that like when I was when I was struggling I I was in middle school at the time and every other people had all these different things going for them, whether it was sports or their extracurriculars or academics. And I was just really good at being depressed. Like that was my, what I had going for me at that point. That was your activity. Yeah. That was my extracurricular. (laughs) took a lot of time out of my day. So it it should count. Um, But so I, I got to a point a year and a half later and it was just a complete 180 from where I was at. And I reflecting back on it, of course, going back to, Oh my goodness. I promise. No worries. No worries. I know you're not bored. will it's, decrease. Yeah. Um, but um, um, yeah. So it was a complete 180 from from my headspace going into treatment, especially intensive treatment. And I had tried everything on an outpatient basis and at home before before we left, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Um, and so reflecting back, there 
was not any teens that I remembered interacting with where they were truly on the other side of their journey and were telling me it was okay, it could be okay, and they were able to change their life. Because I think when when you're younger, when you're a teenager, it feels like there's not a lot of things that you control, especially relating to your mental health. A lot of your life is decided. If Even if you're getting therapy, a lot of the times that your therapist has found your therapist, your parents have found your therapist. So it, it can be really a difficult thing to navigate. And it's easy to get trapped in those beliefs that um, that things won't change and it's not possible. So I felt like there was a huge lack of, of teens in the space, truly speaking about successful recovery and being on the other side of it. Of course, there were, there were kids that were like, it gets better. I promise. Like, um, I'm here for you constantly. Everyone. And you don't care. Team, you, you don't, don't care, care at that time. No. And, um, and especially the people that I was, um, around, were also in intensive treatment. So they weren't on the other side of their journey. And then the people that were telling me it got better were adults. And so it was hard to connect with that. Um, So that was definitely one thing. And then the other thing was that, um, I think we already did both my things. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think. Now, what was the age yeah. demographic? Again, they were just all older people. Like, how, how old were you at the time? What, like? So the first time I was in the hospital, I was 13. Okay. Um, and uh, by, when I went to residential treatment, um, which was like intensive, and I, I moved away from home alone across the country for, for mental health support, I was 14. Um, and I was in treatment after that for about a year and a half, um, both in Boston and Montana. Um, and so that was... Um, 15 ish. Um, and so other girls, um, mostly girls, because it was both girls treatment programs were, were around the same age, 13 to 18 was always the, the age range. And then when you do more local outpatient treatment, there's obviously more flexibility with that. Um, and that's, and it's co-ed. So there were some differences there, but the, the majority of my treatment journey, um, I was predominantly surrounded by, by other teenage girls who, who were navigating similar feelings. That, that is good. And what, what was the moment that you had to go for that? That, that was obviously probably your parents' ideas. You were fighting back on that. <clears throat> yeah, it was, it was interesting. I was in the hospital for the fourth time um, within about a year when I was at home. And to put it in perspective, I was really just a really depressed kid. Like, um, I think a lot of the time when we see people in the hospital, whether it's a celebrity or something, oh my God, what is happening? And the first time I was ever in the hospital, I went to a psychiatrist appointment and I like drew a pie chart of my feelings and I was like sad. <laughs> and she was like, okay, so we're going to like spend some time at the hospital because I was just so shut down and isolated and, and detached from, from my world and my, my emotions were so strong. And so, um, that was that, that first experience. Um, but it wasn't a defining moment and nothing in treatment really stuck. I actually did, which we'll get into DBT, which what was so pivotal for me. Um, I did that at least two times through when I was at home and I didn't really see a change. Um, I did loads of outpatient. I did family therapy, individual therapy, you name it. I tried it. And so um, I was at one, eventually backed into a corner where my parents and my treatment team were like, okay, this isn't working. Um, you can't go back to doing outpatient treatment because things aren't changing. Um, so, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so we, we're going to look at next steps. And so my parents researched all the different treatment programs and, and landed on one called 3 East, which was in Boston. And 
I I remember just not feeling like I had a lot of control over it. I was like, okay, I have to go here. This is what's going to happen. And I had this terrible week between when I found out and when I went. So I was like going to school, I was getting assignments, but I was never going to turn the assignments in because right. I was going to be gone. Like, um, this. I, I was Googling and the hospital that I went to um, on the East Coast, if you've ever seen Girl Interrupted, that book and movie is based off of this hospital, the, the girl that wrote it attended this hospital. So it's like, oh my God, like, where am I going? This place used to be an asylum. It's been around forever. <laughs> like, this is going to be a disaster. Terrified. Um, and so I got there, my parents and I packed up all my stuff. We all flew across the country and we we got there and we got into this this room with at least seven or eight different treatment providers between psychiatrists and psychologists and um, social workers. They were all in the room, my treatment team, um, to do the intake interview. And first question was, okay, so we can do this with your parents here. They can they can leave the room for now. Kicked them out immediately. I was like, they can go. Um, and they this man, he actually came on my podcast. His name is Dr. Blaze Aguirre. Um, and he asked me, he said, do you want to be here? I was like, uh, no, like I. Now, what was the name? What was the name of the place? Um, the program is called three East at McLean hospital. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause mm -hmm. I'm from Massachusetts. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm aware of McLean hospital. Right in Belmont. Yep. Um, so yeah, they're, they're amazing and they are a Harvard affiliated um, mm -hmm. hospital. They're an extreme industry leader um, in the mental health space. Um, they're the number one psychiatric hospital in the country. So yep. phenomenal program, phenomenal individuals. They have the most amazing webinars on YouTube, like at least two or three times a week where they're like insanely talented expert um, clinicians come in and, and teach on different things like navigating the pandemic when struggling with your mental health, how community impacts depression, like all of these topics that are applicable to so many people and you get that expertise, but so great resources. Um, but, but Dr. Geary and I called him Blaze um, because everyone like went by first names and he asked me- and he His was name like, was Blaze? Blaze. That's a great name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and he was like, do you want to be here? And I was like, well, I have to be here. I can't go back to my old therapist. Um, so I'm here. And he was like, it's not how this works. Like, this is a voluntary program. All these girls here that you see, they want to be here. They're choosing to be here. They see the wisdom in treatment. He kept saying they, they see the wisdom in it. And, um, and he, he told me, and the, of course, the whole clinical team agreed. They were like, unless you can see see the wisdom in, in treatment and trust us to help you, this isn't going to work. You're going to go through the motions. You might see some small changes, but nothing's going to be long lasting or sustained because you're not going to truly be in it. And that's why this hasn't worked before. And so I, I he also said, um, this isn't the place at all programs. You can go somewhere. Your parents can sign on the dotted line and, and you can be um, checked in there for however long. And that definitely scared me. And I think um, that's something that's, again, ugh, adolescence, it's a hurdle that you have to kind of navigate in mental health treatment because it doesn't feel like you're always in control. Um, and so I, I took the night to think about it. I ate some ice cream. I watched The Bachelor. Um, and, and the next morning, I, I started my, my four months there. And so that was the first time that I, I ever had enough self-compassion to want to get better. I'd never cultivated that mindset. 
Um, and when he talks about seeing the wisdom in the treatment, it's the logical side of it, which is trusting the evidence, which is that DBT and dialectical behavioral therapy is clinically backed in almost a dozen studies for adults struggling with borderline personality disorder, depression, anxiety, adolescents struggling with depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicidality, all of these things. It's proven to decrease these, these emotions, these diagnoses, these, these presenting symptoms and behaviors. And so it's really hard to sit there and be like, it's not going to work because right. it does work. And that's what's really unique about DBT is that when you go and sit in the therapist's office and you have a back and forth, you do some psychotherapy, it's really dependent on the therapist. It's dependent on what you bring to the session. DBT is um, is not necessarily like that. You learn skills. It's a, it's a certain structure, which we'll get into later in the episode. And so there's not that room for a kind of error, for lack of a better right. term. Um, you're going to have a certain outcome. Um now, and before so, you go any before you go any further, yeah. I definitely want to jump in the DBT. Now, mm -hmm. when were you officially diagnosed, and what was the diagnosis? And then, yeah. when did you feel like you were like, okay, this is working? Was it like a weekend? Was it like a month in? Like, tell us about that a little bit. Then we'll jump in the mm -hmm. DBT because I, I'm still trying to learn about DBT. <laughs> so, um, so I was first diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 13, and I was in the hospital. Um, and I had, was just so isolated from, from my family, from my friends. I'd kind of withdrawn from all my friendships. I had a lot of anger and resentment towards my parents. Um, I was, instead of withdrawing from school, I was kind of going all in. I would come home and work on assignments from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. the next morning and just really avoiding anything. So my sleep was super messed up. My oh, diet yeah. was all over the place, all these boxes that you you typically look for. And I was just, I was really lonely. I was really ashamed, very, very tearful, very overwhelmed. And because I was so young, I didn't have an understanding of what depression was. Um, yeah, that, that age is very tough just in yeah. general, trying to figure out everything going on. Did you, did you kind of like question it? Like, why am I like this or trying oh, to totally. figure it out? I, I had this deep belief that I wasn't deserving or worthy of love. And so this just added to it. I wasn't able to be happy. And, and one thing that I went back to a lot when I started the podcast was that there wasn't a reason that I was depressed. There was no big trauma. There was nothing that there was no huge loss that I suffered. I have two happily married parents. I'm lucky enough to live in a, in a home with my siblings and we have two great dogs. And there was nothing that would suggest that I should be depressed. And yet right. I was, I was so, so sad. And so it, it didn't make sense. And because I wasn't able to be happy and maintain my mental health when I had every reason to, mm -hmm. I, it just added to the idea that I wasn't worthy. I wasn't good enough and, and I never would be. And so, um, I didn't understand what depression was. I hadn't had any friends that had navigated it. Again, I was the first one. It was my extracurricular activity. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you get the old, um, it could be worse or people have it worse than you. Did you get that from anybody? I mean, so how many 13 year olds, do you know, that get put in a, a psychiatric hospital locked down at 13 by like right. the state. So it was pretty bad. It was definitely like people were like, oh, 
Okay. Um, and a lot of people didn't know. I, I kind of disappeared for a week and then I came back to school and I, I didn't really tell a lot of people what was going on. I think after you've been through that, you can see the signs when someone disappears for a certain amount of time and then they re-enter. Um, but, but at that time, no one really knew and I, um, I didn't really talk about it. Um, because we deal with a lot of, a lot of stigma in, in our society and not even just that I was struggling, but the fact that I was re-entering school after literally being in a psychiatric hospital, um, the week before was, was not something that I was advertising too broadly. Yeah. That's, that's not a good show and tell to show up (laughs) with at that age. No, no, no. (laughs) I definitely feel judged. I felt judged like all through the middle school and high school. So I can (laughs) only imagine how you felt. How did you feel? When you were in the those like the psych ward, like yeah, so so it was interesting. I kind of it was different every time. The first time my parents were there every night at dinner, they would bring me lunch. They brought me a bag of groceries because they didn't like the food, and I would make my <laughs> peanut butter and jellies. Solid um, parents. Oh yeah, and then as time went on, there was definitely a shift. So that time I was like, okay, this is like, fine. This is great. I felt validated. What was going on was seen as real. Like this whole production of being in the hospital, getting a diagnosis, beginning that treatment. It was like, okay, what's going on? Isn't normal. It's not okay. Validation at its finest. And so as you go on, I think many people that have been in and out of treatment will get this experience. There, there's a lot done to not reinforce the experience of especially going to short-term intensive care, mm-hmm. um, because it's it's short-term intensive care. It's crisis management. It's not a long-term solution, um, and it's not the the goal isn't to oh I was only out in the hospital one week this year. We're doing great, you right, know. Right. And if that's what's happening, that's okay. It's necessary. Use your resources, and it happens. Um, but 30 years from now, hopefully that's, that's not your, your long-term goal for your treatment. Um, and so a lot was done to, to not reinforce being in the hospital, um, and, and try and figure out, figure out what would work, but it was overall like a, a positive experience. I wouldn't say it was negative. I mean, it's not fun, but, um, I wasn't like, this sucks. I don't want to be here. Um, I understood that I needed to be, um, and it was really just diving into, um, day-to-day crisis management and getting out of that, that really distressed headspace that, that, um, that caused me to end up there. Right. And you must've just thought it was never going to end. That's how it was going to be for the rest of your life. Would you say that? Yeah, I mean, when anyone does something that significant for, I guess that would have been a whole month of my of my middle school and high school experience. Um, it it's normal and and it feels normal. And having that level of like clinical intervention needed to navigate your mental health challenges, it was like, well, this is just what's in the cards. Right. Um, and then as soon as I would leave, it was eight to 12 weeks of intensive outpatient and then back to group therapy and individual therapy. Um, I was leaving school like an hour early, at least once or twice a week to get to these appointments. Mm-hmm. So it was just so atypical to what everyone else was navigating. It really was like a full-time activity, um, but I, I thought it would, would last for forever. Now, did you open up to your parents at all? Or did they get information from like therapy and, and the doctors and stuff like that? Like, would you feel like, I- I'm not going to explain it to you, like that you don't need to know? Yeah. So um, I was actually in outpatient therapy the entire year before I got in the hospital. And it's interesting. I don't know how I wasn't flagged as clinically depressed because <laughs> obviously something was was in the works there. Um, but I, they did not 
they knew something was wrong. I was super withdrawn. I wasn't acting normal. I was more emotional. I was more irritable, all of that kind of stuff. And um, parents are very involved in, in adolescent treatment, especially at that age. So they were coming to visit in the hospital. They were doing family therapy. And so um, they were aware that I was clinically depressed. We didn't know why. I didn't know why. Um, but they were very um, involved in that they would come to sessions and we would kind of hash out our arguments and try and figure that kind of stuff out. And they knew what my treatment plan was um, and, and what interventions were and what I was trying to decrease and increase. And so um, I think at that point, it's when it gets to that level of severity, it's hard to beg. This is my business, not yours. They're like, uh, it's a little, we've, we've, we've moved past that. Okay. Like this is a more hands-on situation. Um, so they, they were pretty aware, but I think to anyone listening, who's like, Oh, I don't want my parents to know what I'm going through. You don't have to, you can, um, navigate a different, a different network of resources, as long as you are reaching out to people. Um, but if it's not on the, on the scale that I was struggling, um, it's definitely not necessary for you to get your parents as involved. Right. Cause I was going to say, if you have any tips for people that don't have good relationships with their parents, cause sometimes I'll see, I'll see tweets with people that are like, Oh, my parents don't understand me. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you deal? How, what would you kind of tell somebody with that? Um, especially at someone your age, that's trying to figure out what's going on in their life. And then they can't even mm-hmm. turn to somebody. If it's possible, go to therapy. I think that everyone can benefit from therapy, no matter what, what's, what space they're at in their life. I think one of the greatest things for me now is in, tr- in therapy, um, when I go to my weekly sessions, is that I can just complain about my parents and get expert advice on how to navigate that relationship. This is someone who's done like years of professional training in relationships and dynamics and changing behaviors. And I can be like, I really want my parents to let me hang out with this person next week. How can I do that? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's you're able to navigate the relationship more effectively. You're able to get what you want out of it when the relationship is strained. And you're also able to get a lot of validation and that it can be a tough relationship or you feel misunderstood. Um, I think if you're not able to go to therapy, um, having a really strong um, support network, um, I would say if you are a teen, not dumping that on all of your, your friends will be one of the best things you can do, even though it's really difficult. Um, it, they won't be able to support you with the level of expertise that, that a trained professional can, it can cause mental health problems for them. And overall, it's just like a lose-lose situation. Um, but kind of finding other adults in your community that you can lean on guidance counselors, teachers, um, family, friends, um, other peers that, that lift you up and make you feel better. And really just having a, a, well-rounded community of people that are in your corner um, and are there to support you. Now, I feel like you might be able to agree with this. Your story kind of took a fast track um, to therapy. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Like you, because a lot of people, for me, example, when I sought out therapy, I had to wait and wait. And I was like, they like, break the stigma and, and talk about it. And I would talk about it. And they'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, there's like a six month wait. So I think I tell a lot of people, like, if that happens, just keep pushing and pushing. Like in your yeah. case, you you were like admitted and you were forced to to get help. Um, yeah, 
It so was definitely, that... it's definitely a problem within the mental health industry. Yeah, 100%. I would go and get checked into a, to the hospital, you go to the emergency room and you sit in the waiting room for sometimes five or six hours. Yeah. And then you're put in psychiatric observation with adults. So me, a little 13 year old who's just really sad is next to like a belligerent drunk man who's being sedated. And so it's it's before they can get a bed in the hospital they you have to wait at least 12 18 hours for that to happen um and so it's it's a serious problem that there's a lacking number of professionals and when you find one that that does have that expertise a lot of the times they have waiting lists or they don't have openings and it's it's terrible it's 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 not ideal um i think within the treatment industry when it gets to that level um there sometimes is more flexibility because it's such an urgent acute situation they might have like a couple days of turnover to find a treatment program or or get you in the hospital but they're not going to be like no sorry like you we can't take you if you're you're meeting the criteria for what Mm -hmm. they're doing um and this is also an 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 economic industry like there yeah it's the one it's the one conversation you definitely have to have when it comes to mental health because Mm -hmm. it like i went into it and be like oh i'll probably see a therapist in a week and then i was Mm -hmm. like i don't know how much time i have yeah you know what i mean so you just gotta Mm -hmm. hang tough like you're probably the same like way to tell people it's like you just gotta hang there and like hang in there and then you like reach out if you need anything. Um, yeah. And it's funny how we transition to those people where you're like, hey, it gets better. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And we're on the totally. other side and we're like, yeah, okay, thanks for totally. the, the kind but, words. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I had an interesting conversation with someone, I think it was last week, and they were talking about using like Talkspace and BetterHelp for short t- short-term support. Like if you're feeling bad, scheduling an appointment with a therapist. And I also wanted to like, caution against that Mm -hmm. because if you're constantly switching around to different therapists uh, first of all the person is going to like completely try to get to know you and work you up every single different time you go to therapy like it's very hard to make sustained progress if you're constantly switching clinicians just like if you meet with a new gp they're not gonna they're gonna have to do their labs they're gonna have to take all this information which is gonna take up a lot of the time um so while reaching out to to support lines or crisis lines, crisis text lines, all these things are great. Use those resources. I would caution against kind of these things where you can get a access to a therapist faster. If you want to use BetterHelp or Talkspace, do it. Go for it, um, and and stick with that treatment provider. Yeah. Um, but kind of every other week, being like, oh, I think I'll try therapy, and then finding a random therapist, and the next week having the same thing with someone else. Um, I definitely think that it's difficult to to see the progress and effectiveness that many people experience with therapy if you're constantly switching clinicians. I went through a couple therapists. That's another thing too. It's like you should feel comfortable with a therapist mm-hmm. that you like. I had a couple mm-hmm. that were just nightmares that would not listen to me and everything. And then I finally found the right one on that path and I'm just so grateful for it. it yeah. is a, it and is I mean, a... me too. I think I ca- calculated the other day, I think I've had nine different therapists that I've worked with in an individual context. Um, and so- there, there are ones that'll work better than others. And I think there's also multiple right fits. I've had at least three or four therapists where I was like, oh, they're the freaking best. Okay. I, I love them. I look back so highly on our, our time together and you can transition and meet with it with meet with a new provider and it can be just as effective in a different way and they can meet you where your needs are at. So definitely advocate if it's not a right fit and understand that I promise there are multiple people out there that'll 
that'll work and it's and it's not gonna if you have one therapist and you're scared to switch i promise it'll be okay seriously and it's like anything you have chemistry with certain people you get along with certain people so it's not weird to not get along with your therapist all of our journeys yeah. are different even though if we're diagnosed the same thing we, we're like mm -hmm. we're going to take the same path but we're going to take different routes yeah we're it's gonna, a relationship we're get there together. it has yep. to be you have to you have to agree with and to some extent with how the other person is supporting you 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 want to be hands-on in your treatment and it'll be most effective in that way and i think people forget that a lot of the time because it's it's like it's it's a doctor if you go to a doctor and like i don't really like you um they're like well this is my job like <laughs> my expertise what do you mean you don't like me right um but it's totally an okay thing to not um kind of vibe with that person because you're going to be seeing them every week for to god knows how long and so definitely make sure it's a good fit and that that you align in in your treatment plan and now right now you're a senior in high school going into college right yes i am a senior in high school in the bay area and then i'm attending the university of pennsylvania next year as a psych major wow that's fantastic and congrats Thank so let's you. back up a little bit when you're at McLean, let's go over mm -hmm. DBT, what that is, what the name stands for, and then we'll yeah. do the timeline of where you are now. Yeah. And how that progress happened. And if you had any, like, not defining moment, but you were like, yeah, it's coming together. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, so DBT stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and it was developed by a woman who's at the University of Washington. Her name is Marsha Linehan. Um, and she developed it for adults that were struggling with borderline personality disorder and were in a really acute, um, in need of acute care. So they were struggling with suicidality. These patients that were suffering on a really high level and their treatment was, for lack of a better term, pretty risky. You didn't really know how it was going to pan out. Um, and so what it is, is a, like it's four or five different pillars, but you have um, skills education. There's this giant book of DBT skills, which is basically what I've now tried to teach over the podcast, but I'll, I'll give you an example of one of those after I explain this. So there's DBT skills education, and these skills teach you how to navigate life. When we're really severely struggling, a lot of the times we, we develop really maladaptive coping mechanisms to get our needs met, whether that's connection or longing or validation, um, DBT kind of breaks it back down so you can effectively get your needs met and know how to stay present, be mindful, um, be interpersonally effective, tolerate your distress, regulate your emotions, all of those kinds of things. So that's what the skills do. And it's in a super um, concrete way, which I think brings a lot of people in therapy, a lot of um, a lot of solace because it's such like a you're like guiding yourself through God knows why the the path is not drawn for you so to have these step by step skills you're like okay this is how I'm gonna advocate for my needs tomorrow this is the deep breathing skill that I'm gonna use to get through this panic attack it's it's very very helpful um and it brings a lot of peace so that's the skills education. Um, the next part is, and that's done with a, a lot of the times in like a classroom setting with other teens or other adults that are also in, in treatment, um, and most of the time on an outpatient basis. The next part of it is individual treatment. So a lot of the times this looks like individual therapy for teens. They'll also a lot of the time incorporate family therapy as well. Um, and so that's meeting with your therapist. You have your own plan to increase and decrease certain behavioral targets and um, week to week, you're navigating through different different things that have happened, different dynamics in your relationships, all of that kind of stuff. 
Um, the next part of DBT is that your your therapist is on a board of other therapists. A key belief in DBT is that therapists need support too. And I love that because it's true. Your therapists um, need therapists. Yes, exactly. And so they um, sit on a, a board together and consult on different um, cases and offer support um, and, and make sure that you're getting um, the treatment that you should be and deserve. And so um, it's really great because you have all these amazing clinicians working to make sure you're you um, do well in your therapy. And then the last part is phone coaching. So you have access to your therapist via phone um, 24 hours a day if necessary in case you get into a crisis moment and so they can hop on the phone and offer you skills coaching and, and give you support that way. Um, so going back to the DBT skills, I, I outlined the different modules, which was mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. Um, and within these, there's dozens of skills. Each module has different skills. For mindfulness, it's the main two are the what and the how skills. So when you're practicing mindfulness, what you're doing is fully participating, observing, and describing the experience. And how you're doing that is non-judgmentally, effectively, and one mindfully. So if you're learning that in a, in a DBT setting, you would be sitting in a classroom, filling out worksheets, understanding how doing those two different um, skills impacts your your mood and your emotions um, and your relationships. Um, so one of my favorite skills to to teach is the tip scale. And the reason why I really like it is because when you look at therapy, anyone can be like, oh, that doesn't work. This skill, it works to bring down your level of distress because there's, there's science and physiological um, sensations. I don't know if that's the right phrase. That's not what I was going for. But it's it's a fact. So um, TIP stands for temperature, intense exercise, paired muscle relaxation, and pace breathing. Um, and to, to kind of break that down for you, the goal of the TIP scale is to lower your physical distress so that your emotional distress is somewhat also lowered and you can then um, navigate the situation enough to where you can figure out what other coping skills you're going to use. Okay. So if you are having extreme anger, you're having a panic attack, you're really, really depressed, you've just had a giant argument, whatever it is, your when your level of distress is 70, 80 out of 100 or, or higher than that, it's really difficult to logically walk through the situation, try and implement coping skills, and even remember what your coping skills are. You're you're probably have, carrying a lot of physical stress, whether that's really intense heart rate, um, increased breathing, clenched fist, all that kind of stuff that we know is um, signs of distress. And you're in fight or flight mode. And so this works to kind of bring you out of that so you can then navigate and cope with the situation effectively. So temperature, um, what you do is you either submerge your face in a bowl of ice water, which this is not the best on the go skill, um, but you can also adapt it and use an ice pack under your eyes, on the back of your neck or on your wrists. Um, you can use a cool paper towel, all these different things. But the most effective and intense version of this is you submerge your face in a in a bowl of ice water. Yes, um, I, I've heard this before. I've actually had mm -hmm. a guy on who does cold water swimming, and mm -hmm. then there's a. I, you, have you heard of Wim Hof? I have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he does that. He submerges, and I, mm -hmm. I don't even like taking cold showers, so I, I got to try that. But I hate it's being cold. Definitely, it's it's not the most enjoyable skill but it works. And when you're in that level of distress, like just having that relief is amazing. So why it works is that it stimulates your mammalian diving reflex. So when we 
as mammals, we can't breathe underwater. So when you're submerged in water and specifically cold water, our bodies work to lower our heart rates and lowering our, lower our breathing rates so that we don't have an excess of carbon dioxide and drown. Our bodies have to do that. They will do that without fail whenever you put your, your head underwater and come into contact and your vagus nerve comes into contact with cold temperatures. It just, just the, without fail, it happens. Yeah. Um, and so using the tip skill, you, when you stimulate your vagus nerve and your, your body stimulates this mammalian diving reflex and it lowers your heart rate, it lowers your breathing rate, these other symptoms of distress that you're experiencing in this situation, they also decrease. So you're kind of raising your level of um, emotional and physical arousal so that you can bring it back down and then um, implement other skills to help navigate the situation. So that's the tip scale, which is that you're putting your face in water, stimulating your mammalian diving reflex. You have your face in there for about 30 seconds and your heart rate will decrease. Your breathing rate will decrease. Like can't not decrease. Right. It's just how your body works. Um, and you can do it a couple of times in a row. Um, the how next long do you do it for? about 30 seconds for each kind of different um, time that you put your head in head in ice water. It's a long 30 um, seconds probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, time kind of flies when you're really emotionally distressed. And so it's, it's not too bad. Um, so the, the next part of it is intense exercise and intense exercise. When we go on a run, we do push-ups. whatever it is, our body um, will lower our heart rate after it gets to that high um, that high level when we're exercising because it can't maintain that level of output for a long period of time. You would have loads of physical problems. I'm not a doctor. I don't know exactly what those are, but like you'd probably like have a heart attack or something if your heart rate was constantly at like 180. Right. It's not good for you. Your body lowers it. It's part of how, how it works. So when you are in a really intense emotional state of arousal, um, if you go on a run, if you do squats, if you do push-ups, if you do sprints, these things that are like really pushing your body to the max, um, you are further raising your heart rate from what it was at that point of distress and your body lowers it below that threshold that it was at when you were experiencing that anxiety, fear, anger, whatever it was. Um, and then the last two are pace breathing and paired muscle relaxation. So pace breathing is you're breathing in for most of the time, two counts, and then out for three. And so you're you're maintaining your breath work over a period of time and, and increasing your exhale um, so that it's longer than your inhale. Um, and you are, again, decreasing your heart rate, lowering your breathing rate to take away those physiological symptoms of distress and impaired muscle relaxation. On your inhale, you clench your muscles and on your exhale, you release them and you do that kind of like from your toes up to your up to your head and kind of just walk through that, um, that practice. But when we're distressed, we carry a lot of physical um, stress in our bodies, whether that's clenched fists or tight shoulders. Um, and so when you're intentionally clenching those further and then releasing, it takes out that physical distress as well, lowers your heart rate, lowers your breathing rate. So all of these things take you out of that state of physical arousal that comes with emotional distress so that you can have a more kind of level-headed mindset and you can figure out what skills you're going to use next to get through a crisis. Now, how did you want to do that? I feel like a lot of people would be resistant to all of that. They'd be like, that's too much work. It's not going to work. Did, like, did it take you a couple of times to do all that to be like, okay, yeah, I can feel it. And then like, what activities do you do or suggest you like, do you run? Like, what is your, what is your go-to move? Yeah. So there's a huge part of mindfulness, which is mindfulness. There's a huge part of DBT um, in the mindfulness module about willfulness and, and willingness. And so how, 
like similar to what I talked about earlier, having the wisdom, seeing the wisdom um, in different skills and, and wanting to do them and being willing to implement them. And you could get into all the therapeutic reasons of why you're feeling willful around practicing a skill and what that could be, what that could mean. What is it that's so adverse to you about implementing a skill? Um, or what is the barrier there? Are you worried it's not going to work? And if it doesn't work, then that means that therapy doesn't work for you and you're the outlier and this isn't going to change. So kind of, you can totally unpack that and figure out what's going on there. Um, but totally did not remember where I was going with that. And then what's your uh, go-to? Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that one. Um, it's all right. But yeah so okay now i remember so in the moment um having that willingness is something that's difficult to to cultivate and a lot of the times it's just kind of doing it um i feel like especially with anxiety when you're having a panic attack it feels like you're gonna die like you will do anything to make that distress go away and it can be a, a big barrier to implement the skills sometimes it's not thinking about it too much it's just going and doing it um and that's where phone coaching comes in and it's really really helpful to have a therapist talking you through it and and telling you what skills to use and, and helping you process through why there's a block to using the skills for me i'm really big on deep breathing um i love doing pace breathing um i also really like doing the um, the temperature part. So I won't do a lot of ice dives, which is what they call them. Um, but putting like cool water underneath my eyes, like with a washcloth or on the back of my neck or just running my, my wrists underwater, under cold water, that's another huge thing. Um, and then doing sprints or squats um, is typically what I would um, lean towards as far as the intense exercise side of things. Um, I, I like doing sprints. I like doing that kind of thing. And it's also like one of the ones that just your heart rate goes up and it's, yep. it's more effective than if you're sitting there doing a wall sit for like hours, which is not one of the recommended exercises for the tip scale. Now you're feeling good. You're getting to where you are now. What is mm -hmm. it like? Is there any moments that it kind of clicks back? Obviously it's not as worse as it, as it once was, but do you have certain things that happen? How does that feel? How do you like, obviously you use your methods to get over it, but does it happen often? Does it happen like once a month? Like how would you describe it now within where you are? Yeah, I think like every couple of weeks I'll have a, a day where I'm like, oh, I feel really physically depressed. Um, yeah. It's not as much where I like mentally notice. It's more, it's more physically. I don't have as much energy. I'm feeling more lethargic. I don't want to get out of bed, like those kinds of things. And I've really just leaned into something I actually learned um from Dr. Geary when I was recording um, with him on my podcast, which is mm -hmm. that um, life is impermanent and that impermanence will be on your side. So no matter what you're feeling in that moment, whether it's depression or anxiety, because life is impermanent, that's the only constant, that depression and anxiety will shift and it will go away. And so for me, I know that it's not going to last that intensively for longer than a day. So just really leaning into that idea of, okay, this is what I'm feeling right now, but it's not going to last. I'm going to get through today. I'm going to go to sleep tonight and I'll wake up and I will feel different. And that that impermanence will take over and my, my mood will shift. Um, but it's a lot of opposite action and and keeping busy and, and doing the opposite of what I want to do, which is stay in bed and isolate and, and not engage and just kind of watch TV. It's instead, okay, getting up, doing work, going to school, all of those things. You're a very hard worker from what you said when you just filled time and you would work from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. You're mm -hmm. very well spoken. You're very smart. You like you must feel proud of yourself, right? Yeah, I had a moment That's yesterday. Good. 
where I was like going to UPenn like I I was really really proud of that um and this year was a terrible year of college applications for for so many and acceptance rates went down at every single school and oh yeah um I have two sides where at one one point I'm like I I spent three three years in three different states at three different high schools I had to take a semester off I did a year and a half of intensive treatment look at how far I've come I deserve this and at the other side it's like so many people um are deserving of attending these amazing schools and and um they've worked so hard throughout their high school careers and so it's not to say that I'm any more deserving or anything like that but it was a moment where I'm like wow like I I have worked so hard and it's and it's and it's kind of um all coming together and that, you're more than um, deserving <laughs> <laughs> thank you um so it was just a moment where I was like wow like this is really 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 cool that I this is the point I'm at now um but yeah everyone listening to this right now is probably like what like she went from like the deeps of darkness to like the brightest spots of your life and you're mm-hmm. you're only so young still like you have so much ahead of you and to get this not done because we're, yeah. we're gonna live with with what we have for the rest of our lives about managing it like you said but to get a head start like a lot of people don't do this at your age and you obviously totally. know that and there's probably a bunch of people that you reach out to because your podcast is mostly reaching out to your demographic obviously you go down mm-hmm. like the whole list and help every, everybody but i feel like if anyone has like kids that, like or younger people that might listen to this, like obviously go to you because you have so much to, to give. And then you, you're way smarter than me in my podcast. I just talked, like I dropped out of, out of college <laughs> and I just dealt with it. And then I got diagnosed at the age of 35. So the, everyone has different paths, but to, I commend you and hats off to you to get that, see that, fix that and put in all the hard work in between that. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you're making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel really lucky that I, had my mental health challenges when I did I think to drop everything in your life and take time off school and and really have no commitments because you're struggling so much isn't a luxury that a lot of people are afforded um I was literally 24 7 doing therapy and treatment and I think that's something that's very hard to to commit to and be able to do so I feel really lucky that it didn't necessarily impact my grades or my my school performance because it was so early on in my high school career and that I was able to actually take the time away instead of it being like at the end of high school or in college there were so many things that just went right in the situation um and to be able to have have strong relationships know how to build strong fulfilling relationships have an amazing toolbox of of skills to navigate through life um and really cope with anything that's thrown at me i feel really really lucky um, that that's that's my experience, especially going into things like college, like people are stressed out about rooming or navigating that change. I'm like, I've been there. I've roomed with so many different people in treatment and moving around. And it's like, I, I got this. And so it's it's amazing. And it's a much more fulfilling way of life than what where I was at before. And the best years are like still to come for you. Like at yeah. that age, you're like, oh, high school is the best. You watch all these movies. You're like, oh, this is going to be great. But like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not peaking in high school. I, keep yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I know a lot of those people still. They still talk about their glory days on the football yeah. field. So, yeah. yeah, you have the best years of your life, especially with college. My only tip with college, don't do drugs. All right. Stay away from yeah. the drugs. <laughs> stay in the books and just keep pushing. Mm-hmm. Um, now. What tips, I, I actually went over a bunch of tips, but do you have any anything in particular or what would you say to yourself and what would you 
what would you give them as a pep talk? Because you said you yeah. earlier, you said you were lucky. I don't think you're lucky. I think you were just destined for this to happen. Like we all have our dark moments and it's just how you deal with it. Some people mm -hmm. can't, unfortunately, and some people can. So I wouldn't say you were lucky. I think you, you fought it and this is where you were supposed to be today. Like, like you didn't think you were going to go to the college that you're going to at that point. I didn't and, think I was going to still be alive at this yeah, point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So people out there that are thinking that, there's always a way out. It's just mm -hmm. perseverance and a support system. And Persistence. Support, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah she did persist she, she lives <laughs> up to the name of the podcast so she is legit but, but yeah. yeah um so i always say that the hardest thing that i ever did in my treatment journey was for that first time accepting help and 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 being willing to to have that help and that didn't make sense um so what i always go back to is being the most difficult part of my treatment journey and i think this um, is applicable to many people, even if you're not having as intensive treatment is for that first time asking for help and accepting that I needed help and, and being willing to accept that support from other people. Um, going to someone and saying that you're not okay, first of all, is incredibly daunting. You're risking rejection. It's extreme vulnerability. Um, but it also makes it real. You can't backtrack and compartmentalize what you're going through and hide those emotions away. When you put that out there, it means that, that the emotions you're feeling are real, they're impacting you, and they are so extreme that you can't navigate them, them yourself. Right. Um, for me, I saw that as a weakness. I couldn't, I couldn't cope that that wasn't, I wasn't good enough. Um, when in reality, um, when you when you go to someone and you get support, you you are a lot stronger, not because other people will will fight your battles for you, but because you have a whole team in your corner willing to offer resources and their own knowledge and and just be there for validation um, and, and connection. And so you, as a result, are a lot stronger and you have a lot more people's years of wisdom on your side. Um, and so for me, I was again backed into a corner. It wasn't like I was going to my parents and I was like, hey, I'm not okay. I was literally put into the hospital and told I wasn't okay. But but being willing to accept that support and and realize that the, the depression was real and that these emotions that were going on were were very powerful and I couldn't navigate them them myself and I needed help. And then deciding to take the next steps, whether that was outpatient and continuing to do therapy and work on myself. Um, that, that was very, very daunting and very scary, but looking back, it was worth it. Um, so oh, that yeah. first time, um, admitting that you're not okay, accepting help and, and being willing to realize that you, you can't navigate it by yourself and that's okay. No one is supposed to, that's why people go to training and, and school for years to, to help people with me mental health issues. Um, you with no experience in, in this field are not equipped to navigate this yourself and, and you shouldn't be, you're not supposed to be. Um, and so that's why therapy is so helpful is these, these skills that people go to school for years to, to master and learn. Um, they're able to impart those on you and offer, offer their wisdom from their journeys, um, to help you, you navigate yours. It is, um, it is a, like a, a wild story to, um, to get to where you are today. And I appreciate everything that you shared with me today. I, I know what I was going to say. I was kind of stalling there for a second. Um, <laughs> with Boston, what did you like? What did you like about Boston? What did you not like about Boston? Because it's always funny when yeah. people come out here and like, what, what were the, well, obviously you had more of a focus on what, why you were coming mm -hmm. out here, but like, do you have any expect expectations when you came out here? I, so we go to um, Cape Cod every year. So I was aware of the area we'd been there before. 
But I loved my time in Boston. I was in intensive treatment, but it, I look back on those months so fondly because it was the first time I felt that depression lift in years. I was starting to feel happy and, and I just had that huge personal shift that I will always look back on that time period with so much gratitude for, for the team and admiration and just and kind of the appreciation for myself for, for putting in that work and being willing to do that. Um, as far as um, Boston itself, we would do, and people are gonna be like, you were in treatment, like this is really what you did, but we would go out to dinner Fridays and Saturdays. We did ice cream nights on Tuesdays. We did takeout pizza on Mondays. Heck and then yeah. on Saturday and Sunday, we went into the city and would go to museums or we would go shopping or like all these different things and do activities. We'd go to like Potter me mine and like do these little like fun activities right. um, because that's life that this is what's so amazing about this program is they're teaching you to navigate real events so these kids yes we're really struggling we're living in a psych hospital but they're also going to have to go out and go and navigate a dinner um and know how to cope with that so they're they're putting you through these situations like like you're in the real world right. um so I have a couple of things that were my favorite there's this one brunch spot Stephanie's on Newbury so good Right. Every single time I go back to Boston, freaking love it. Um, <laughs> there is a amazing Mexican place, basically the food, love the food. Um, there's an amazing Mexican place in Harvard Square called Felipe's. So good. That's one of my favorites too. Um, there's this fun little lunch spot um, called Pressed Cafe. It's near Belmont. It's not in Belmont. I don't remember exactly where it is, but love that place too. Um, so getting to go out and do those kinds of things was just so fun. And then on the weekends, my parents were flying across the country every weekend to do family therapy and spend the weekend with me and build that rela relationship from the ground up. So we would walk around Boston and, and walk around the city and go through, um, the Boston common and the parks and just explore and spend time together. And so it's so beautiful. And it was, it was, I feel really lucky to have spent those, those months there. Um, but very fun experience. Love it. I love every time I go back, but yeah, amazing place. We have, yeah, we have like the best hospitals and like the smartest people, but yeah. and like everyone's like very tough to here, I would say mm -hmm. like just it, it's, it's a different breed of people out here, which is yeah. uh, super funny. What, what part of the Cape would you go to? We would spend some time in Brewster and then Nantucket as well. Oh, isn't the Cape just God's it's country? Amazing. It's, it's so best. much fun. It's it. I, there's this amazing scene in the office where Andy, when he goes through anger management and he's like, I'm in Nantucket, yeah. think of the whales. And I feel like that's me. Like whenever I'm someone's like, picture your happy place. I'm like, I'm, I'm in Cape Cod. I'm on the beach. I'm in Nantucket. Um, and so totally, totally with Andy Bernard on that one. Oh yeah. Is that, that was the episode when they put his, uh, the phone in the ceiling and he punched the wall. Was that the, yeah, yeah that was, I think yeah. it, that was when he went to anger Ranch, but I don't know if that was when he did it or it was when he came back and something was going on. He's, but he's like, use my skills, use my skills. Yeah. I learned this. I'm in my happy place. And this is when he was like, I'm not Andy. Call me Drew. I'm a new person. And everyone's like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. He's a great character. And for Love the it. people that don't know Massachusetts or where Cape Cod is, it's that weird hook on Massachusetts mm -hmm. that that's where everything is. Like P-Town yeah. is on the tip and P-Town's a great time too. If mm -hmm. you've been out there, that's uh, yeah. very colorful. And, and Moby it, Dick is all about Nantucket and that area. Yeah. So we got everything. Like just mm -hmm. everyone come out here. The Cape is the best. Um, awesome. Yeah. Let's finish up with some fun here. Um, I asked you to think of like three kind of out of the box things that you're grateful for, like small things, the little things mm -hmm. in life. Cause obviously you're thankful for everything you've been through that all the positive in your life, the, the schooling, 
getting into college, your parents, especially, they commend your parents too. Like that, yeah. they're the best. I don't even know them and they rock. I would, I know if, if they need someone for adoption, they can, they can, I'll, I'll, I'll put my resume in. Yeah, no, their, their willingness to participate in my treatment journey was, was crazy. And I have so much gratitude for that. Just the sacrifice that they made to, first of all, accept that I needed help and that they couldn't give it to me. That in itself is an extremely difficult thing to do, but then completely uplift me and being willing to to move me across the country and not be at home and then themselves travel and participate um, in treatment. It, it, was, it was crazy. And I have, regardless of how parents navigate treatment situations, I have so much compassion for them because you you are at a loss. Your worst nightmare, which is seeing your child struggling is true and it's happening and you can't help them and there's nothing you can do. And the adolescent treatment industry is a really hard thing to navigate unless you've been in it. You don't know what programs to look for and what resources are good. And so, so much compassion to any parent that's navigating that or trying to figure it out because there's there's no roadmap and there's no, this is right. what you're gonna do and this is what's gonna work. It's just, you're completely on your own. And hopefully that changes. Like yeah. send me an email. I'll help you. Um, I will give you like tips and tricks and all this kind of stuff. Like you're not alone, but it feels that way. That's perfect. So what would be your three things? Um, the first one, we have two dogs. They're English cream retrievers. They're like golden retrievers, but they're That's white. That's what I wanted to ask earlier was <laughs> what type of dogs and what were their names? They're so cute. So they're English cream retrievers. One is six and one is going to be two this next year. Um, and their names are Piper and Posey. And they're the cutest ever. They are my favorite things. And so my first thing was puppy cuddles because it just makes my whole day my favorite thing. Um, my Nothing's second better thing, than dogs. Nothing's so better much. Than dogs. So I used to be like, I'm not an animal person. And now every single time I see a dog, I'm like, I need to pet it. Like yep. my favorite. Oh my God. And I, and then I was like, after I was like, I'm not an animal person. I'm like, I just like my dogs. I don't like other people's dogs. And I was like, nope, I like all the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my second thing is school pizza that like terrible undercooked pizza that they give you because when we went into lockdown last year from high school I was just like first of all craving the school pizza that they had it's like you can't go into it expecting to eat pizza it's because that's not the experience it's like its own breed of food but I went back to school for the first full day yesterday um, of my senior year which is crazy over a year later and just being able to get that freaking school pizza and sit in the quad and um, be around other people and have it be somewhat normal. Yeah, it's um, more about the experience of the pizza, yeah. it seems like. So yeah. I like that one a lot. It's a good pick. And so, so much gratitude for that. Um, what will my third thing be? Do you like cold pizza? Um, it's not really. I like yeah, me neither. People are it's crazy like for very it. specific, like thin crust cheese pizza. I'll eat if it's been refrigerated like the next day, but that's the only kind of pizza I'll eat. Yeah, I, cool. I don't. I need my food piping hot. That's supposed mm-hmm. to be hot. And I think cold pizza is the most overrated thing in the world. I'm in a meeting. A, this is an important meeting of a guy that doesn't know she, anything about mental she's health. She's asking for a sweatshirt. No, come back in 20 minutes. Yeah, 20 minutes. 20 minute Tim. 20 Perfect. Tim minutes. Look at that. We're using each other's uh, our code names. Um, <laughs> she's like, Sadie, can I wear a sweatshirt for school today? Who is no. that? my sister all right we'll, we'll put her as at third number three for stealing my clothes yeah 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 that's a good one because <laughs> it's family you know it's family. yeah yeah um and then what would be a song that kind of maybe got you through it or maybe there's a song that you remember that was during your journey or just something that you've been listening to lately that you would recommend yeah 
Um, so many different things. Um, Taylor Swift just re-recorded her her album Fearless, and so when I was originally listening to Fearless, I was struggling and at the beginning of like my whole mental health journey. So now listening to that and being on the other end is like a really cool experience. Um, and identifying with the songs and being, oh my gosh, I remember these emotions. It invokes so much, I think is a really, really cool thing. So that album I really love. It's um, weird that music can do that. Mm-hmm. That it bring like yeah. it just comes back into you. Yeah, totally. So that's probably the biggest one recently that I've been thinking about because like she just like released it. Everyone's listening to it. Like it feels like you're re-experiencing it for the first time, but it also is those all those emotions tied to it. The nostalgia. Now, do you listen mm-hmm. to Haim? Oh, Haim? I've always forget to. Pronounce I it. I they're don't. Friends with, they're friends yeah, I know with they're her. friends. I've seen her post about them on Instagram, but I I don't listen to them. But I should. Have you tried them? No, I they're have a, not. They're a great band, and uh, I think they're from California. I don't think they're from wow. the Bay, obviously, but mm-hmm. uh, they're very good. Uh, they play instruments and. They're just three sisters that rock. And their first album, listen to their first album, and I think there's only one song I don't like on it. Okay, um, I'll listen to it. Yeah, please do. And come back with a book report because I know of you course, can do that. Of course, of um, course. And then what movie, same same like concept, is something that you remember that like helped you like laugh or get you through yeah. or some nostalgia feels? Um, I'll give two different ones. Well, first of all, nice. the TV show that I watched during treatment was Gossip Girl. I started, they would give you these, you could check out a DVD player. And when I was at the program in Boston, they had a bunch of DVDs and you could check out a DVD player and watch it for like 30 minutes in your bed before you went to sleep. So I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like you did have your phones. I was like, this is the best. And I started watching Gossip Girl and watched all of Gossip Girl during my time in treatment. So I, I, freaking love that show it's my favorite so excited for the reboot but that is definitely like an iconic show that is so tied to my time and treatment um I also was like super um strict about watching Bachelor Mondays during my time and treatment no one else wanted to watch it with me but I was like guys we're watching really? the Bachelor this is going to be great and that brought like a lot of kind of schedule to me um and it felt more normal to be still doing this even though I was in treatment um as far as movies I would have to say either um i mean i don't think i've even seen it but girl interrupted is about mclean so yeah, you said to that some earlier. extent i have to be like that one um even though it's it's not that if you watch that movie that's not what going there is like mm. i know it's crazy um and then um, i don't think i've seen it so i'll do my book report on that perfect. and come back to you with that um, and then the other thing that we actually watched while I was in treatment that um, now looking back, I'm like, huh, that makes a lot of sense is the Truman Show. Um, I think when you're in intensive treatment and 24-7, every 15 minutes, someone's like, hey, are you alive? Like, without fail. Um, people are watching you. You're living with clinicians. Like, you have a team of at least 10 to 12 people just working on you. So so really that I similar, similar sensation. Um, so that would be the other one would be the Truman Show. That movie, when it came out, that after that, everyone was like, "Yeah, my life's a TV show." They yeah. just thought that, and I, yeah. like I was young when it came out, so you weren't you weren't even alive. But that movie has gotten so much better with age. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. such a great movie. So now, good. Now you were talking about The Office earlier because you said mm-hmm. Gossip Girl and it reminded me of Parks and Rec. Have you mm-hmm. seen Parks and Rec? I've seen a little bit of it also in treatment, but The Office is my all time favorite. Oh, see, I I like The Office, then I got into Parks and Rec, and now Parks mm-hmm. and Rec I like more than The Office. No, The Office always. No, The Office like they they lasted too long. They they should have stopped early. It's perfect. Okay, it's now perfect. you got to watch Parks and Rec. Okay. Don't start in season one. Start with season two and just go. Season one's okay. bad. Season okay. one's bad. Um, and then do you have like a, like a theme song you would come out to? Like if you were like a boxer or like a, 
like an MMA person, like just something that pumps you up? Like if you were going for a sprint, like what's your jam that you're like, I'm running through a brick wall? Taylor Swift. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I don't know. <laughs> That's like not very creative or good. Or no, it's cool. You're gonna like what you like. Taste is terrible, but yeah, it does sound like some, it. But we'll, I love I'll, some Taylor Swift. I love it. Taylor Swift and the and the Bachelor is like <laughs> I, I get it. Like high school yeah. girl, I yeah. get it. I don't get what what's the fascination with the Bachelor. I've only seen like probably bits and pieces. It's like, just wh- funny. Like the it's the thing funny. about the, these people are so stupid. um you get to just laugh at these mistakes they're making and of course so much of it is like they're changing the editing they're making them look crazy on tv yeah 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 you just get to be so judgmental and dick oh my god that's so like why is not feel bad about what is happening um exactly so that's that's what i love about it all right well let's finish up with this plug everything you got where people can find you when your episodes are released give me give me everything you got for the good people of uh this interview yeah, my episodes are released on Friday, and you can listen oh, to She Persisted good. on all platforms. Um, you search She Persisted, and then it'll come up. Um, my Instagram is at She Persisted Podcast, and then you can go to my website, ShePersistedPodcast.com, and you can find all of the information, all my links to everything, more about DBT, the podcast, me, all of that. Everything that you have is so organized and so clean. And I'm like, I'm like messaging you, asking you questions to help me out. And like, everything's like a theme color. Like you mm-hmm. have it like all figured out and it's like so good. And you, you've been around since 2019 with the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many episodes do you have? I'm at like 60 now. I think I definitely took a couple months off here and there. Oh yeah. You got to take months off. I'm trying mm-hmm. not to, I'm just, cause mm-hmm. mine's only 20 minutes. So I have nothing to yeah. complain about. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, cause my ADHD is all over the map, mm-hmm. but I thank you for taking the time. I'm so glad we of linked course. up. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you for what you've gone through. Your story is amazing. Definitely thank like inspirational. You. Nothing but love for you. Good luck at college. Don't do thank drugs. You. <laughs> just, just keep kicking ass. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Sadie. Have a good one. Of course. You too. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. If you are feeling suicidal, please dial 911.